0: Session one of how to study the Bible, and uh, (laughs) this is about the third time we've tried to start this, hopefully this time it will take, but I was just saying how wonderful it is to have live people here with me instead of just staring at a camera. So anyways, uh, this session is going to uh, introduce you to a Bible study method that's very ancient, and has been used by the rabbis for hundreds if not thousands of years and I found it very beneficial I hope you do too but as we get started um, i was just thinking of Psalm 119 verse 18 which says Adonai unveil my eyes I may behold wonders from your Torah and we don't often think about the Torah having wonders in it but David saw wonders you know Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible It goes through all 22 letters, of the Hebrew alphabet, with eight verses, beginning with each letter. The first eight start with Aleph, the next eight start with Beit, and the next eight with Gimel. It goes all the way through the alphabet. And the entire psalm, this long chapter, is in praise of God's Torah. And David loved the Torah because that is how we begin to tap into the very mind of God. So no wonder the enemy wants to keep believers away from the Torah because it is filled with the information and with the insight and the intimacy with God that we all desire. So learning how to tap into the Torah to see its wonders and to draw out of it what God so much wants to say to us is a skill. And it's something that has to be learned and practiced. So I also want to say this. For many years growing up, and I love studying the Bible, for many years, to be honest, though I would talk about how Jesus was my Savior, in my heart I didn't trust in him as my Savior, I trusted my theology as my Savior. And it was only many years later that I realized I'm saved by what he did for me, not about whether or not I have it all nailed down correctly in my mind. And when you're free from looking at your theology as being your Savior, and you know your salvation is secure in Yeshua, Jesus, then your theology has become something that you don't take so personally. And if something's wrong with it, you want to fix it. If you're missing something, you want to embrace it. And if you're believing something that doesn't belong, you want to chuck it out. But if you believe your theology is your Savior, you don't want to change anything. And when you study the Bible, you'll only be looking for those things that reinforce what you already believe. You're not going to be looking at how you can be more conformed into the image of the Messiah. So I hope we all have the mindset that we have so much to learn. We really don't know anything at all because the word of God and his Torah are as vast as the mind of God himself. And so we swim in the sea of Torah. We swim in the sea of God's word exploring it enjoying it and asking God to open our eyes to unveil our eyes behold the wonders that are there now when you look at the word I this is my really sad attempt at drawing a pond and uh, (laughs) so I don't know what it might look like to you but that's a pond with some grass on the banks but you know there are some different ways of looking at the word most people when they look at the word what they do is they look only at the surface they read the verse and they try to understand what it says, and there's a lot of value in that. Tons of value. But they're only seeing the surface. Like someone looking at the surface of the water, they might see a leaf floating around, or they might see a turtle stick up its head, or a fish jump out of the water. So they see some things. But a better way to approach the Word of God, or I should say an additional way, is to look into its depths. Because that's where the life is down there you'll see the fish, you'll see the plants that are growing, you'll see activity, Uh, you'll see all kinds of things taking place inside God's Word. You'll see it's alive. But there's even a better way, or I say an additional way, a higher way. And you have to focus your vision further away. And that is when you look and you see the heavenlies in the water and you can look into the Word of God and see things beyond this world just like you can look when you look at the surface of the water but not at the surface but through the surface to what's reflected there you see the Sun the moon the stars you can see so much that is not of this earth and when you learn to really look deeply I say I should say distantly into the Word you begin to see the face of God but you have to change your focus and it's not like one of these is right and two of them are wrong. They're all right. But we need to learn how to do all of these. Now, as we go through these sessions, um, don't hold me to this, but these are basically the sessions I'd like to do. And maybe not necessarily in this order, but today we're going to look at days And I know many of you are thinking, what in the world is that? We want to also study the menorah pattern. That will definitely be the next session. But then after that, I'm looking at four additional sessions, How to Mark Your Bible. This is a skill that will revolutionize the way you study. You know it is that most people, they underline things. But pretty soon, your entire Bible is underlined. You have to go get a new one and start over. Well, I can uh, help you to not have to underline so much. There are all kinds of, there's a whole system you can use for marking your Bible, making it very useful. And you can find things quickly without your Bible look like a total wreck. How to do a word study, extremely important. Uh, We'll do a session on Bible translations, and also I'd like to give some pointers on teaching the Scriptures. Because if you're a Bible student, and you really want to retain what you're learning, find someone to share it with. Teach it to somebody else. Because if you can't explain it, you don't really know it. And the best way to check to see if you know what you're talking about is to talk about it and see if you can explain it to someone else. And when you can do that, then you know the material. And it's a wonderful thing to do, to share what you're learning from God's Word. It will be a blessing to you and to whoever you're sharing it with. And also some time for Q&A. So I'm looking at these six basic sessions, maybe not necessarily in this order, and not necessarily every week. Uh, We'll probably go two or three weeks for next session. We'll just plan the next session as as we have an opportunity to get together. Okay, so it's not going to be an every Sunday night thing. All right, paradise. What is paradise? Pardase is a Hebrew word from which we get the word paradise. Now, paradise, we think of utopia, but it has a very specific meaning in Hebrew. It means a walled garden, a walled garden. Now, if a garden has a wall around it, it means what's inside is valuable and beautiful. Inside that garden, there are going to, there are going to be fruit trees. There will probably be flowers. It's going to be a place of great beauty and sustenance, and you want it protected. Now, though the scriptures don't specifically refer to the Garden of Eden as a walled garden, we knew it had to have a wall because the garden had an entrance. And when Adam and Eve were evicted, God stationed two cherubim there with a turning, flaming sword to protect the entrance to the garden. Now, most gardens, like we have, Eden, it's easy to get into. But Eden had to have been a, a paradise, a Parde, a walled garden with an entrance. Now, in Hebrew, it's spelled with four letters. Going from right to left, it's going to be Peh, then Resh, dalit, and Sonic. Peh, Resh, Dalet, Samach. This is an acronym. And the Pei stands for Peshat. Peshat means simple, just surface. And this is always the first step we take when we're reading the Bible. What does it say? What are the facts? Give me the facts and nothing but the facts. We want to make sure we're reading through a good translation so the truth of the original Hebrew and Greek is not being misrepresented through a bad translation. And I'm going to tell you right up front, every translation is a commentary that reflects the biases of the commentator, the translator. And we're going to see why it's almost impossible to really translate the Word of God, especially the Hebrew. Hebrew has so many levels to it that... When you translate a verse, you've got to pick which level am I going to translate. I, it can mean this and this and this. I've got to pick one. And even then, they pick something that's not even saying sometimes. Uh, you want a literal translation and interpretation. Um, the question is, can I take the Bible literally? And the answer is, yes, the literal parts. But there are a lot of figures of speech in, in the Bible, and I'm especially familiar with Hebrew, I mean, over and over again, it'll say uh, someone like Abraham lifted up his eyes. Now, if you take that literally, he's popping his eyes out and holding them up and looking around. That's not what he means. It means he's looking up. But they say he lifted up his eyes. Um, when Jacob and Laban uh, were parting ways, Jacob fled from Laban without telling him. And Laban had also been deceiving Jacob. And the phrase that's used there. Is Why did you steal my heart? But your translations will say, why did you deceive me? Because that's what it means. But I love the original phrase much better. Because when you deceive somebody, it means they were entrusting you with a part of their heart, and you stole it. You are not reliable. And you diminish them a bit. You diminish their heart a bit. Why did you steal my heart? It's a great phrase. And there are so many things that we want to get the literal translation, but we also want to get the proper interpretation of what's being said. There are so many Hebrew idioms, and they're beautiful, they're colorful, and uh, uh, we want to understand what they mean. For example, uh, Yeshua in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about if if your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, in the Talmud, it says, if your hand offends you, cut it off at the waist. It's just pretty extreme. It's a figure of speech is saying take drastic measures if there's something in your life that is stumbling you. Don't just play around or read a self-help book. Take drastic action. But we also know it's a commandment not to damage the temple of God's Spirit. So Yeshua is using hyperbole. Hyperbole is something that is used throughout the scriptures. In both the Hebrew and in the Greek where they overstate something to drive a point home but if you take it literally you're gonna be a lot of handless people walking around you know and what use are we going to be then we want to know the Hebraic and historical background and this is the toughest part of the shot right here because most Christian commentaries are going to give you Christian background and Christian interpretation and that's okay but not if they're skipping Hebraic background, because the entire Bible is a Jewish book. It's written in a Hebraic mindset. If we don't understand those background things, we're going to be missing so much of what the Scriptures are saying. For example, everybody's familiar with Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, right? And it says there in Acts chapter 2 that... uh, says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Well, first of all, we think that's the first Pentecost. I've shared with many of you before, I was in a church in inner city Akron on a Sunday night, and uh, it happened to be the day of Pentecost. And so I asked them, I said, does everybody know what day is today? Yeah, it's Sunday. I said, no, 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 what day on the calendar it is, and nobody knew. I said, well, today's Pentecost. They said, yay, they were all excited. I said, when was the first Pentecost? They said, way back in Acts chapter 2. I said, no, that's, that, it was over a thousand years before that. And they had no idea. Because Pentecost is the Greek for Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. It's when the Jewish people celebrate the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And what would happen at Mount Sinai there was fire that came down the mountain what happened at Pentecost next to fire came down the heads of the Apostles God spoke to the mixed multitude and what do we have in Acts 2 we have a mixed multitude speaking all these different languages and what's really amazing is in the Talmud And the Talmud is not inspired scripture don't get me wrong it is not inspired scripture but it gives us a lot of historical context it tells us that the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt all heard God speak in their own language so what happens in Acts 2 these people of all these different languages they hear God speak in their own language and it says they were in the house we picture this little house well how come all these foreigners are in the house where I'm living the house is the temple that's another idiom when it talks about the house it's the temple because that is where you're commanded to go on Shavuot. It's one of the pilgrimage feasts. And when Pentecost comes, you are at the temple. I had the good fortune of being in Israel one year for Shavuot. And oh my goodness, you used to see the celebrations going on at the Western Wall. The place is packed, it's dancing and singing. And it was just an incredible thing to see. Everybody was there. And uh, so that was kind of the scene here. So it's packed with people that had come in from all over. Uh, another thing, because this time of year this is appropriate, in Acts, I'm sorry, in John chapter 10, we read this. At that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The feast of dedication. What is the Hebrew word for dedication? Hanukkah. It's a feast of Hanukkah. But most Christians have no idea what Hanukkah is. They know it has something to do with lighting candles. They call it Jewish Christmas. <laughs> and the only place you find Hanukkah in the entire Bible is in that verse, in John chapter 10. So if we understand what the Feast of Dedication, that's what Hanukkah means, dedication. We'll understand what that means, and then we'll begin to understand why Yeshua was walking in the colonnade of Solomon on the Feast of Hanukkah, and why the things he says following that were so appropriate, and why the people asked the questions they did. But if you don't understand Hanukkah and its history, you can't understand fully what's going on in John 10. This is why Hebraic and historical background is so important. Geographical info and all kinds of things you can get out of commentaries and studies and maps and all of that. We're not going to spend much time on Peshat. You'll think, well, that sounded like a lot of time, Grant, but it wasn't. Now, remes and Drash are very similar, just like the letter uh, Resh and the letter dalit are very similar. The only difference is the one has a rounded top. I'm not sure why the screen is not changing. That's very strange. But hopefully it will change here in a second. Yeah. That's not working. But uh, <laughs> remes means hint, hint. And when we go to the level of Remez, after we've completed the Peshat, when we get to Remez and Darash, this is what we want to do. With hint, it means allegories, types, parables, life applications. Did you get that? Allegories, types, parables, life applications. And I'm going to take the liberty of unplugging my iPad, plugging it back in, and see if it picks up where we're at. So there we are. Okay? So Remez and Diroche are very similar, and there's a lot of overlapping with these two. When I'm doing a study, I put Pashat at the top of my sheet of paper, then I put Remez and Dirash as two parallel columns, because there's a lot of cross-pollinization with these two. So let's get some examples of, of allegories, types, and parables. In Numbers 21.9, it says, So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What does that make you think of? Who was attached to a pole? And when we look to this person... Healing comes into our lives. Redemption comes in. What's it a picture of? Of Yeshua, of course. And you may be wondering, well, shouldn't it have been something besides a serpent put on that pole? And Yeshua himself, in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And um, so you might wonder, well, why was it a serpent? Shouldn't it be some animal that eats serpents or kills serpents instead of a serpent? Well, what does Paul tell us? Over in First Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians 5, I believe it is, he says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Sin is the enemy. I know Satan is represented as a serpent, but the poison he puts into us, or his lies that cause us to sin, as they did uh, with Adam and Eve. So, what did Yeshua do? He became sin. When you look at the, think of Yeshua on the cross and you see his hands and his feet and his head and his side, you're getting a picture of what God did to our sin. He took the hands of our Yetzer HaRa, our evil inclination, our sin, and he nailed them down to where he says, They don't have to cause you any more problem doing the things you shouldn't do. When you see your shoes and feet nailed to that cross, God's saying, I've given you the capability where you don't have to go where you used to go. When you see his head pierced with that crown of thorns, he says, you don't have to think the way you used to think. When you see the, the hole in his side, I believe it went into his heart, says, you don't have to feel and react to things the way you used to. His tongue was dried up. He says, you don't have to talk the way you used to talk. So when you see all the damage done to his body, that's the damage God did to our sin. We don't have to live the way we lived. Okay? So we have to, by faith, realize I am crucified with Messiah. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Messiah lives through me. Okay? So, beautiful types, beautiful pictures. And this is what Remez is about, looking for the pictures, the life applications and things. Uh, another example, uh, Deuteronomy 25.4. Uh, there's a simple commandment. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. I don't own any oxen. I doubt if any of you do. So why do I need to know that verse? What's interesting is the Torah doesn't tell us to obey the commandments. It tells us to guard the commandments. I can't obey that commandment, I don't own any oxen. But I can guard it, because somehow that commandment is an expression of God's heart and mind that has benefit to me, for all scripture is given by God's inspiration, in-breathed by God, and is profitable for my teaching, and for my uh, reproof, my correction, my instruction in righteousness. So how does that help me? Well, Paul quotes that passage in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 and 10. He says, for it is written in the Torah of Moses, quote, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, unquote. And Paul goes on, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So the grain that the ox is grinding out, he gets to feed on And Paul is talking in the context of people who labor in the gospel, who labor for the Lord. You should allow them to feed on some of the blessings that God's giving you. And um, if you have a pastor who's doing a good job, pay the guy. Don't let him be miserable. Don't spoil him rotten either, because that can truly ruin him. And I can say that Beth DeCoon has been so gracious to us, to Robin and me. And I have no complaints. So I never want to quote this thinking I'm trying to hint at something. No hints here. Uh, no complaints for me. But you see how Paul has taken a commandment from the Torah and he's applying it to us, to how we live. We can do that with every single commandment in the Torah, every single one. And you know, it's, it's funny, but most people, uh, Leviticus is their least favorite of the first five books of the Bible because talks about leprosy and sores and ooze and blood and hairs and skin turning funny colors. and But that's one of the most valuable passages in the entire Bible. Leviticus is at the heart of the Torah and when children are learning the Torah in in, uh, their yeshivas, they start with the book of Leviticus. It's the handbook of the priest. They want the kids to be priests of the homes and they want them to understand how to unlock the principles there because when you read about Zarat leprosy it's telling you everything you need to know about sin how it affects us how we deal with it and how we get cleansed from it that's what the entire discussion's about but we need to learn how to unlock it and when we do oh my goodness the book just opens up it blossoms with these rich insights about how we deal with sin in our lives Drash, on the other hand, means search. In fact, in the Torah, the Torah has an even number of words. If you count from the Genesis 1-1 to the the very end of Deuteronomy, you start from each end and count towards the middle, you wind up with two words in the middle of the Torah. Those two words are drosh, drash. They're spelled the same way. It means searching he will search, or he diligently searched. At the very heart of the Torah, these two words, God wants us to search in his Torah now searching what we do we look for biblical quotes you know the New Testament scriptures are constantly quoting the Hebrew scriptures the Hebrew scriptures are constantly quoting the Torah in fact the first five books are the part of the Bible all the rest of the Bible is talking about and quoting and looking to for its authority and Yeshua is always quoting scripture Um, and when he was being tempted by the enemy there's one book of the Bible he quoted Deuteronomy quoted it every time when he's encountering the enemy now if Satan's tempting you Do you know what to quote from Deuteronomy defend him off so we need to study these things and learn how Yeshua used the sword of the Spirit the Word of God to do battle against his enemy our enemy so biblical quotes repetitions of words um, and by the way, I want to add this too. Biblical quotes and non-biblical quotes. There are plenty of those in the, in the Bible as well. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. And it constantly is quoting non-biblical sources. Let me give you one example, just one. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. I don't know if I have it in the notes, so I'll just try to quote it. Uh, But it says that they all drank from that same spiritual rock that followed them. Oh, I do have it here. Yeah, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Messiah. He's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. What does he mean, the rock that followed them? Well, it doesn't say so in the Bible. But if you look in the Midrash, which is the ancient Jewish Bible study, you could call it that, that Yeshua would have known inside and out, and Paul and the other disciples. It says that the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness and gave forth water, it says that that rock rolled with them for 40 years and continued to provide water for them. It's not in the Bible. But what does Paul say? That rock that followed them was Messiah. So here, he's relying on a non-biblical source to make theology. So the question is, did the rock actually follow them? Yeah, I believe so. Because Paul says it's so. And I don't think he would lie to us. And I don't think he would use a fairy tale to try to teach us truth. Paul also quotes some pagan poets. And uh, Yeshua often quotes... Um, other extra-biblical sources. Now, that does not mean extra-biblical sources are inspired. It simply means there are other facts outside the Bible. For example, if, uh, Mark, when is your birthday? July 14th. July 14th. Is that true? Absolutely. Is it a biblical truth? Absolutely not. No. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Mark Oment born on July 14th. And the Bible quotes all kinds of things that are true, that have their source in other places, but it's just simply not inspired Scripture. Okay, so we test those sources. We don't take something outside the Bible and just swallow it because it sounds good. We have to be very careful and cautious. But it's good to have some of the mental furniture that the first-century believers had, and uh, uh, as they write the New Testament Scripture, so we can understand the references they're making. I was talking to, to someone recently I think it was uh, your husband Marty uh, we we're on the phone and uh, we we're talking about it seems like every pastor in the country when uh, Lord of the Rings came out Fellowship of the Ring and there's that scene where Gandalf is going across the bridge and the big fiery the Balrog comes up and Gandalf, he takes his staff and he says, you shall not pass. And he hits the thing, and the bridge collapses, the bowrock falls through. And it seems like every pastor of the country is quoting that. Lord of the Rings, great book. Is it biblical? No. Is it a great illustration? Oh, yeah. You understand? The writers of the scriptures did the same thing. So we just need to sort through. We weigh everything, and we eat the meat and throw out the bones, spit out the bones. Uh, Brandon, I saw your hand sneaking up.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, isn't it
0: the Zohar that was quoted more than any other extra biblical source by Yeshua? Um, it was quoted a lot. Um, but I'd say probably Perkei vote is quoted more, well, I should say in the New Testament Scriptures, perkayavote, Avot, which is one tractate of the Mishnah, is quoted, I think, 156 times in the New Testament Scriptures. Yeah. I'll give you an example. In Perkei Avot, it, uh, it asks... Perkei Avot, it means chapters of the fathers. They're just wise sayings from the ancient sages, including Gamaliel, who was uh, Paul's rabbi. He's quoted. We have a lot of quotes from his rabbi, Gamaliel. Great guy. Brilliant man. But anyways, I think it was Rabbi Akiva who was asked to uh, sum up the entire Torah, Uh, While standing on one foot is either a Kiva or Hillel might have been Hillel Hillel is Hillel Okay, and this guy says quote the entire Torah tell me teach me the whole Torah by staying one foot in other words Do it quick before you fall over and so it says Hillel stood on one foot. He says whatever is hateful to yourself Do not do to another Good advice whatever you hate don't do to anybody else Now everybody knew that quote everybody did But what does Yeshua say? He takes a negative, don't do to others what you hate, and turns it into positive. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And everybody heard the contrast between those two. So he's not quoting a source, but he's taking the source everybody knew and he's turning it on its head or bringing out a new insight. He's turning it from a negative into a positive. Be proactive. Don't just go around trying not to irritate anybody. Go around doing good, okay? So, um, anyhow, we're really getting off. But uh, I hope this is meaningful. Uh, let's see, uh, what else do we have here? Repetition of words. Um, Luke eleven twenty. Oh, I love this one. In Luke eleven, the leaders are accusing Yeshua of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, right? So Yeshua answers them, explains in pretty clear terms how that can't be happening, but he says this interesting thing. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now here's the interesting thing. The phrase, the finger of God, is found only two times the entire Bible. This is one. And the other time is back in Exodus. And of course, the leaders who had the entire Torah memorized, they recognized every phrase in the Torah. They would have recognized this phrase immediately, the finger of God. Anybody know where the finger of God is found in the Torah? Yeah, Brandon. Yes, Janus and Jambres. Two people who Paul talks about who aren't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, by the way. But that's another story. It's in Exodus eight nineteen. It says, then the magicians said to Pharaoh, when they couldn't repeat one of the plagues, they said, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Adam had said. Now, why is this so important? What Yeshua is saying, he's saying these two pagan e- Egyptian magicians could recognize the finger of God when they saw it. What's your problem? You see? The verse takes on a whole new meaning now, a whole new level. Uh, here's another one. Uh, I picked this because it's from this week's Torah portion. Uh, this week we begin the Vayeshev, which is the story of Joseph. And it says that Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. Others say it was a woolen jacket, a woolen tunic. Others say it was a, a long sleeve. Nobody knows what the Hebrew means. Ketonit Pasim is the phrase in Hebrew. Nobody knows what it means. So translators, they do whatever with it because we just don't know. Do you know Katonat Passim is found only in two places in the entire Bible? Joseph, who received this gift of love from his father Jacob. And the other one is Tamar, David's daughter, who was raped by David's son Amnon. And after he raped his sister, this horrible story, then he hated her. His lust turned into hate, and he kicked her out of a house. And when she left, it says she was wearing a cotonet passim. It's only two places in the Bible. So when you find this phrase here, and you find it way over here in 2 Samuel, you have to, God's saying, these two stories need to be brought together because I'm trying to teach you something. Look for the parallels between Joseph, who is rejected by his brothers, and Tamar, who is rejected by her brother, And there's all kinds of insights. And I'll leave it to you to explore that. Okay? One was a man, one was a woman. And they were both violated in particular ways. And totally mistreated, misunderstood. Both of them were damaged in ways, but they were still God's people. They had this cotonet passim, just these two. So anyways, that's something to to look into. I want to go back to Ramesh for a second. Because there's a danger in looking for types where we see a story and say, oh, that's a picture of this. We need to beware of something called pareidolia. Does anybody know what pareidolia is? We all have it. If you've ever looked up in the clouds and you said, oh, that one looks like Elvis or that one looks like a cow, whatever. Elvis guy looked like a cow there near the end, too. but <laughs> I shouldn't say that. But uh, uh, that's pareidolia. Pareidolia is this thing that's built into human beings where we see patterns where there aren't any. And so when people start looking for types, we have to be very careful. And I'll tell you right now, looking and identifying types is like having an ear for music. Some people have it and some don't. And most people have it to some degree or other. And so be careful. If you see something you think is a type, you see this story, say you're reading about Passover and the Passover lamb and so on, and you start thinking, you know, that Passover lamb is kind of like Yeshua. His blood was shed so they'd be passed from death to life, and his body passed them from slavery to freedom. And it happened on the same day that Yeshua was crucified on Passover many years later. Could it be the Passover lamb was a picture of Yeshua? If you think that might be the case, go to talk to someone who you know is proficient in using types and bounce off of them. And I guarantee they're going to say, absolutely, good job, you found it. And you can begin to open up and look for more pictures of Yeshua in the story of the Passover lamb. But I've had people come to me with some of the most harebrained things. And it's like, just put it down and back away. Stick with Peshat for a while longer. And, <laughs> and, and drosh, you can do that. But uh, types are like music. And uh, some people are better at hearing them and catching them and seeing them than others. Okay, And it's okay if you don't quite see them. Let other people provide the music. You enjoy it when they perform. Biblical Connections and Patterns biblical connections and patterns Um, a pattern Yeshua um, when he began his ministry he he went through the waters he was immersed by John the Immerser in the Jordan then he went into the wilderness for how long 40 days and 40 nights when Israel came out of Egypt they passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then they were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay? It, uh, after those 40 years, they finally passed on into the land, and they began to settle and do the combat that was necessary to settle the land. And, and then after Yeshua's 40 days of testing, he went and began his ministry, doing combat with the enemy, and gaining followers, and began to establish the kingdom. Uh, also, just as um, Israel was called out of Egypt, Yeshua also spent time in Egypt and he came out. And a prophecy is that I'll call my son out of Egypt. So you see these patterns. And it's showing us that Yeshua is like the new Moses. He's like the new Moses. And as Moses was a prophet and a redeemer, we have Yeshua, the prophet, the redeemer, and also the king. Um, how about uh, Exodus seventeen six? Moses says, "Behold, I will stand." Or God tells Moses, "Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink." And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Deuteronomy eight fifteen. This whole thing happens a second time. But uh, Moses is talking about it, and he says, Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. And, of course, that rock, as we mentioned earlier, is a picture of Messiah. The rock was struck. Yeshua was struck. Did the rock retaliate? No, it gave forth what it had. Yeshua gives forth Living water. He's the source of living water. And just as the rock, I believe, followed them, like Paul said, Yeshua is with us all the time, always there to provide living water for us. What a beautiful picture, beautiful parallel, beautiful connection. But we also read in Daniel 7 about a rock that's cut out without hands, that comes and smashes the nations and grows, becomes a kingdom that fills the whole earth and lasts for eternity. Who do you think that rock is? That rock is Messiah, and then it talks about the rock who the builders rejected, the stone the builders rejected. This becomes the chief cornerstone. Who's the rock? It's Yeshua. And what did Yeshua do for a living? He was a a stonemason, not a carpenter. He might have worked with wood a little bit. He was a stonemason. And the reason we, our Bibles say carpenter is just bad translation because King James. Translators didn't understand first century Jewish culture. So they, it basically, it's a word technom which means like a home builder. They thought, we make houses out of wood, so Jesus must have been a carpenter. They make houses out of wood in Israel. They make them out of stone. He was a stonemason. And what are we to be? What does First Peter tell us? Living We're living stones. Isn't it fitting that a stonemason would build an eternal structure, a house out of living stones, which is what we are. Begin to see the connections and the themes that run through Scripture. (coughs) And then we have Sod, secret. Sod is something you can delve into pretty much only if you know Hebrew. But just knowing there's another level that's deep and under the surface is a faith builder. So if you don't know Hebrew, you can maybe pick up some things from people who do or, or books by rabbis and so on. It will sometimes bring out some sewed level things. But one of the things you can always do is that first one, meanings of names. You can get, uh, they're different Bible name dictionaries. I like this one, the exhaustive dictionary of Bible names. Every name in the Bible is in here and it gives you what it means. (coughs) So if you look up the name uh, Bethlehem, it's Beit Lechem, house of bread. Who was born in Beit Lechem, the house of bread? Yeshua, who is the bread of life. And when he was born, what did mary what was mary inside of when she gave birth a feed trough so the bread of life was born in a feed trough in the house of bread so knowing what a name means can be really useful um, what else do we have <coughs> gematria gematria is the numerical value of Hebrew words and also Greek words you know in Revelation it talks about the Antichrist and says the number of his name is six hundred sixty and six 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 I'm not sure what that means have ideas but it's talked about the gematria of the Antichrist name and we find gematria in other places as well because they did not have numerals in ancient Israel they used they used uh, Hebrew letters if you look at the Hebrew Bible, I have one right here. The verse numbers are Hebrew letters. Okay, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, and that's, that's a Hebrew letter for each verse. And that's just the way it is. So you can get carried away with this. And the gematria has nothing to do with numerology or fortune-telling. That's nonsense. It simply means that there's another level that God, who is omniscient, was so brilliant that he could encode into the scriptures numerical patterns that are absolutely incredible. Now, this can be a huge distraction. I'm warning you right now, don't get all caught up in it, but when you find something that's really fascinating, that's great. Let me give you an example. We mentioned the word serpent earlier. The word for serpent is nachash. Nachash. Nun, ket, shin. Nun has a numerical value of 50. Ket is 8. Shin is 300 so it has a numerical value of 358, which just so happens to be the exact same numerical value of Mashiach, Messiah. Mem, Shin, Yad, He, 40, 300, 10, and 5. Is that right? For Mashiach, 340, 50, but yeah, I'm sorry, that's a ket, that's 8. You fill in the little gap, turns from a, a five to an eight. Mashiach and Nakash, Messiah and serpent, have this exact numerical value. Why? Because God's telling us that when Messiah came, he exactly neutralized every single work of the enemy. And that's exactly what the scriptures tell us that Yeshua came to do. It says in 1 John 3.8, it says there, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, he did it precisely and exactly. And when the whole story is done, there won't be one accomplishment that Satan accomplished that Yeshua didn't cancel out. Exactly. That's good news, isn't it? Um, there are, here, here's another one. David's name is spelled Dalet Vav Dalet, David, that equals whoops that equals David, and in numerical value there's four plus six plus four, which equals fourteen. Now, when you look at Matthew one, it gives the uh, family tree of Yeshua, and it says that from uh, uh, Abraham, I'm sorry, it's, it starts with yes, with from Abraham to Solomon was 14 generations. From Solomon until they were carried away to Babylon, was 14 generations. And then from Yeshua, or from Babylon until Yeshua's birth, 14 generations. What's he trying to teach you, Matthew 1? That Yeshua is the son of David. So he's 14, 14, 14. But knowing the Hebraic calendar, you see also that the Hebrew calendar, of the months, are all based on a on the moon cycles at a new moon you know there's no moon and then there's a slight little sliver of a new moon you go 14 days it's a full moon and then you go 14 days there's no moon then you go 14 days it's a full moon when Abraham came there was no light he was the beginning of the light God began to work through Abraham 14 generations later you got the son of David Solomon <sighs> great king just light everywhere. The kingdom is just flourishing. There's peace. You go another 14 generations and the lights are out and they're all in exile in Babylon. You go another 14 generations, Messiah's here. The next son of David, right? The lights are on. And then you go 14 generations and the lights go out. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible when you see how God's word works. So these are sowed-level kinds of things. Spiritual Insights want to save that because we're going to do an assignment together. And we, let's go to Genesis chapter 10. We want to look at Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. This is a story we're all so familiar with. And so I, I was hoping we'd have enough time to really discuss it. And we'll do it a little bit, but it's a fairly short story. And we'll begin in Genesis chapter 10 with just a couple of verses about Nimrod. And then we'll skip on to chapter 11. So, Genesis chapter 10, starting with verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. He was the first to be a mighty man on earth. He was a mighty hunter before Adonai. Therefore it is said... Quote, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai. Unquote. You see what Moses is doing there? He's quoting an extra biblical source. Who says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai? I don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. But it was a a popular saying at the time when Moses wrote Genesis. You see what's happening? All right. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babel, as it's pre- pronounced in Hebrew. Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. All right, so let's read about how Babel, Babel, was built. So we turn the page, go over to chapter 11. So if we were going to take time to dupe a shot, you would get a map out and say, okay, where's the plain of Shinar? You might do... You get some archaeological books, and they have photographs of what they think might be the foundation of the original uh, Tower of Babel. Uh, you might get some information that tells you what, where, what year in history this took place or thereabouts. And you might go back and back up and read about Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and how uh, Nimrod came through Ham's line and how it was different from the other two lines. And so you can do all this Peshat stuff, just getting the facts and then making sure you're reading an accurate translation. So you look up in different translations, do word studies, make sure you have the information as stated. Okay, we're not going to take time for that tonight. We're going to jump right into the Remes and Rush. So chapter 11, start with verse 1. The whole earth was of one language and of one purpose. Now in Hebrew, it doesn't say purpose. It says they were of one word, one devar. And it came to pass when they migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them in fire. And the bricks served them as stone, and the, bit, and the bitumen or tar served them as mortar. And they said, Come, Let us build us a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed across the whole earth. Adonai descended to look at the city and tower which the sons of man built. And Adonai said, Behold, they are one people with one language, or one lip is what it says, one lip, one sapa. Usually it talks about language, it'll say one tongue, one lashon, but here's saying one lip. I'm not sure why. Something for you to work on. One one lip for all. This they begin to do. And now should it not be withheld from them all they purpose to do? Come, let us descend. And there confuse their language that they should not understand one another's language. And Adonai dispersed them. Now notice in verse 4, they wanted to build the city and tower lest they be dispersed. But it says, but Adonai dispersed them. (laughs) He did anyway, same word. He dispersed them from there over the face of the whole. Now, the word there for earth is erets, which can mean earth or land. You have to look at context, and even context sometimes doesn't tell you which one to go with. But the same word for world and the word, word for a land, like this is my land, or the land of Judea, it's the same word. So it's vague. So we have to deal with that. And that's something that a translator has to deal with. And they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, Babel. Because it was there that Adonai confused, Balal. It's called Babel because he balal'd the language of the whole earth. And from there, Adonai scattered them over the face of the whole Eretz, the whole earth, whole land. So there we go. We're just going to look at those nine verses. So let's go back to verse, uh, let's go back to chapter 10 and talk about Nimrod just for a second. It says, he was a mighty man on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that word before means before the face of or in the face of. It can also mean that he was a hunter in defiance of God, like in your face. And that's why they came up with a saying. That someone, oh, he's like not Nimrod, a mighty hunter in God's face or in defiance of God. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babel. So in Nimrod, we have the first world dictator. Now, if we go down to the Sod level, we find that the name Nimrod means rebellion. Now, how did they rebel? Well, back in chapter 9, God had commanded, and God says and God blessed Noah and his sons, and said so of them be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Go out, fill it up. But what do these people say? Oh, let's build a city and tower so we don't get dispersed. So we stick together. And we'll build this big city and this big tower, and we'll all be together. Total rebellion against what God had commanded. God wanted Noah's sons to fill the earth. To go out and fill the land. They said, no, 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 let's stay all together. See that? You know what? We need to be, here's a, here's a, uh, a drosh. Here's a life application. We need to be very careful as churches or messianic communities or whatever it might be that our goal becomes to get big and to make a name for ourselves. We need to be very careful. If we're healthy, God will grow us. But it should never be our intention to get big and make a name for ourselves. The moment we do that, it's not about him anymore. It's about us. He's building a monument to me, a monument to us. Just to be cautious of that. And you'll find out through history, giantism also always precedes collapse. You see a uh, civilization gets really big and powerful. All the air goes out and it's gone and some other civilization grows up in its place. Yes, Brandon. Can you maybe explain the difference between like, the
1: purpose of like, evangelizing? Because I know, I guess in the context of the
0: evangelical church, yeah.
1: the whole purpose is growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and kind of what you're talking
0: yeah. about here, of the danger of that? Yeah, evangelizing has nothing about getting bigger. Right. Evangelizing is taking the good news of the Messiah and his kingdom and sharing it with lost souls. And so they can share it with somebody else. Our goal should never be to grow big, but to grow out. That's, that should be our goal, to grow out, to fill the earth, but not to keep everybody together and keep this one big thing. And when you, see, <laughs> when you see some faith community getting in that mode of thinking, it's danger, it's danger. And their focus, when it might have been very healthy and righteous when at one point, begins to shift and it begins to rot. Just does. You see it over and over again. And that's something we should learn from this passage. This passage is written for our instruction, right? Our reproof correction, instruction, in righteousness. This is important to know. Here's another sowed thing. Babel is spelled like this Bait, Bait Lamed. Like BBL. That's where we get Babel. You know what happens when you take Babel and spell it backwards? It becomes lavav or labab, which means heart. The problem with Babel is their hearts were backwards. And that's the source of all confusion, when your heart is backwards. And by the way, the word lavav, it's usually pronounced lavav now, but originally it was pronounced labub, because that's the sound your heart makes. Labub, 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 right? So um, we need to be very careful that our heart doesn't become backwards, because then it's confusion, and then just dispersion. Here's another thing. It says there in verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them in fire. There's only one other brick story in the Bible. What's the other brick story in the Bible? There's only one. Say it out loud. Yes, Egypt. Yeah, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they're made to make bricks for another dictator, Pharaoh. Now think about these two stories. Here in Genesis, they're all, come on, guys, let's make some bricks. Let's build a city, let's build a tower, make a name for ourselves. Come on, let's burn these things. They say, come, twice, come on. And they're all enthused, they're all together, they're all of one purpose. They're united in the spirit of rebellion. But let's take the next brick story. These people weren't enthused about making bricks. It was a miserable life. They were in slavery. Now, you take those two stories together, and you've got the story of socialism, of communism. It always starts out with great enthusiasm. Come on, guys, let's rebel against the, the man. And we'll be free, we'll live communally, we'll make this neighbor, it's going to be wonderful, It'll be utopia. But you watch out, and, and, and Nimrod becomes a pharaoh. And what was once done with great enthusiasm, you become slaves. You have some people on the top, who are calling the shots? Everybody down here. Oh, they're all equal now. They're all slaves. The one brick story always leads to the other brick story. Okay.
1: Is that a red or a
0: garage? Yes. <coughs> it's one or the other. It's a red man's or <laughs> I would say that's probably a dross because you're making a connection between one story and another story. You're looking for a pattern. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know I should. So, I, I'm, I, I don't write very well on here. Very well on here. I can't write as small as I like. So I'm kind of trusting you to write things down. One thing I'm going to do, I'm going to fill this out neatly with my notes and things I'm sharing, and so this will be on the website and in the link tomorrow, so you can watch this again if you. Uh, if you think it might be good for your self-discipline and you can print out, <laughs> print out the notes as well. So I'll have it all there. It's just, I, I'm trying to move a little more quickly now so we can get out of here on time. And uh, But it'll all be there tomorrow. Is that okay? All right. Um, it, how about you? You see some other life lessons here? Some Drusha remeses that come to mind as we go through? Because I can just keep talking if you want, but I'd like to hear if you see anything. There's a lot of stuff going on. Okay, the people desired to build a city. And Nimrod is a rebel against God, so let's talk about God. What does God desire to build? What is he building? Say it out loud, don't whisper. Say it out loud. Don't be shy. I'll tell you if you're wrong, don't worry. (laughs) So... so, (laughs) (laughs) a kingdom kingdom. but what's a kingdom made of People? people he wants to build a people he wants to build a people more particularly specifically he wants to build a bride now these people in Babel they said come let's build a city and a tower whose top will reach heaven Yes, tell me about the city God is building. It comes down. down. You go to the end of the book, Revelation 21, 22. I love that passage where um, John says and the angel says, Come, I'll show you um, the bride, the lamb's wife. Right? Okay, I want to see the bride. You expect to see this woman, right? He says he took me to an exceedingly high mountain, and I saw the New Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. What's the bride? It's a city. What's the city made out of? Living stones. What are the living stones? You and me. It's a beautiful type. You'll think, well, I want to spend eternity as a rock. <laughs> When we start talking about things this spiritual, we can't quite grasp the reality of it. But God's giving us a rough sketch that he's building a bride. Remember how Eve was made. There was Adam, who again, he's a picture of Messiah because Paul calls uh, Adam the first Adam and calls Messiah the last Adam. And just as Adam... he out of his side, a side was taken. Out of that side, a bride was formed. And it says, and God brought the bride to him. There's a day coming when, from the side of Yeshua, God, and he is forming a bride now. He's going to bring the bride to Messiah. He's going to bring us to him. And we'll be together forever when we will be this beautiful new Jerusalem. Okay, I, I mentioned previously, I wasn't going to, I didn't share any spiritual insights in the sod level. I want to do that now. When you look at the word for tar or bitumen or whatever your translation uses, because that was the mortar they used for these, these clay bricks. The word there for tar is the word chomer. It's spelled like this. Let's see, is there a vav in there? No, there's no vav. Ket mem. Resh. Khomer. That's how you would spell it in English. So, Chomer means tar. But if you change the pronunciation, don't change the spelling, just change pronunciation to Chemer. Chemer means wine. And you find the word used in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah and I think there are other places, but it means wine. Now, isn't that weird? Why would God take a word and use the same word for tar and use the same word for wine? It's because he has something very deep and beautiful to teach. And this man-made city that was made in rebellion, they made bricks out of mud, out of clay, and they glued them together with homer. But God's saying, I'm making my city out of living stones. They're glued together with wine. And what's wine a picture of? Yeshua's blood. It's Yeshua's blood that makes us one. He offered the cup to his disciples and to us. He says, drink all of it. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's what sticks us together. It's what makes us one. There's no coincidence that the same Hebrew word is tar at the Tower of Babel and it's wine as well because there are two different cities that are being built, one by man trying to reach heaven, one by God that he brings to earth when his kingdom comes. You can't make this stuff up, but it's there. But you have to dig. You have to dig. And also it takes help from God because David said, Adonai, unveil my eyes that I may behold wonders from your Torah. This is one of those wonders. And one of the things we're so blessed with, we say, well, I don't know Hebrew like the rabbis did. I don't know the rabbinic sources and the insights and the culture and all the Jewish background. But you've got the New Testament scriptures, which they don't have. Okay? So we've got a lot going for us but we're still not excused from doing the work that needs to be done. There's so much to do, so much to learn. So let's see, what else do we have here? We have a few minutes left. Um, I mentioned the confusion of languages, right? When were languages unconfused? Because God doesn't want people dispersed forever. He wants us to come together, but under his auspices, under his kingship. And so we see the languages unconfused on two occasions— The first Shavuot at Mount Sinai, when he redeems this great mixed multitude of people out of Egypt from every language and tribe and tongue, he brings them all together and he speaks his Torah to them. And they become one. And then at that Shavuot over a thousand years later, 1,500 years later in Acts chapter 2, and uh, when God empowers his community with his spirit. And again, people hear God speak with one language. He's breaking down, he's correcting the confusion that was done here at Babel. And Babel becomes Levath, becomes a right heart. Um let's see. Um there's a passage here in Luke. Uh, chapter 14, verse 28 to 30. And there it says, Yeshua is speaking, says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. They're going to say, you're kind of like Nimrod. (laughs) Nimrod, you might have a lot of power. You might be a mighty hunter in defiance of God. You're kind of stupid because you couldn't count the cost. You couldn't finish what you started. And you have to think that Yeshua was thinking back to this other unfinished tower when he said that. Here's a, a great passage. I know this is everyone's favorite book, Zephaniah. (laughs) Zephaniah 3.9. This is a passage you need to mark in your scriptures, which I'll show you how to do a few weeks from now. But Zephaniah 3.9, wonderful passage. It's talking about the kingdom coming. And it says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples. Peoples is the Gentiles, all of us. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of Adonai and serve him with one accord, with unity. So what was done at Babel will be completely undone when the kingdom comes, and that's what Zephaniah 3.9 is referring to. But now here's a Sode level. If you back up to verse 8, one verse before, it says this, Therefore, wait for me, declares Adonai, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. And that's a bad translation. I wish I hadn't used that one. But it talks about how he will will, uh, refine them in the fire of his jealousy. His zeal, yeah, jealousy and zeal is a better term there. That verse is unique in that it is the only verse in the Bible that contains all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet plus the five final forms. What I mean by that is uh, the Hebrew is is unique. Uh, Greek has a letter, sigma, changes shape when it's at the end of a, a word, And uh, I don't think any other Greek letters do that. But in Hebrew, there are five letters. They have one particular form. For example, the letter Zadi uh, looks like this when it's in a word. But when it comes at the end of a word, it changes shape. It stands up. There's a letter Pe, which means mouth, which looks like this. But when Pe ends at the end of a word, it does this. It changes shape. There are five letters that do that. This verse contains all 22 letters plus all five final forms. The only verse that has that. And then it's followed by verse 9 where God says, I'm going to give all the peoples a, a new language where they can all talk together in one accord. And they can, you know, going to, He's going to reunite them in that way. But the verse before that uses all the letters of the alphabet and all the five final forms, the letters to which God communicates to us. No coincidence. By the way, when you talk about the letter pay, which means mouth, the letter is shaped like a mouth. You can see it's facing to the left and it has a, an upper jaw and a lower jaw and it's closed. And the Jews say, God's trying to teach us here to keep your mouth shut until you get to the end of something, then open it. <laughs> so when pay's at the end of a word, it opens. So, good lesson, huh? <clears throat> um, let's see. Anything else that comes to mind? Any other insights? Life lessons? Connections with other parts of the scriptures? All right. Well, there's plenty more there. But uh, I think we've kind of exhausted ourselves. Yes, Tim.
1: I would say one thing is um, kind of encouraging is as I've gone through... And studying, I think we've all kind of experienced this. You know, we all want to get to the, the deepest level now. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah. but over time, as we as we start to, to mine the, the 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 shallow depths, we'll learn something, but we don't know what it connects to yet. Yeah. But we keep that.
0: That's in right. Mind. And then as we right.
1: go along, then all those deeper connections start to start to take place. Yes. And then it just keeps going and going and going and going. And going. So that's that, that's yeah. what I've been encouraged by yeah. as I as I've done this, because all of a sudden something will be it'll just strike me because mm-hmm. there's something I learned that I didn't have a connection for before, and now I do. Yes. And it's
0: so that's fun. right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, of you just have to be patient, and uh, years will go by, and then the other the connecting half of that truth comes along. And it's like, there it is. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, be patient. Don't try to see it all overnight. Which reminds me of a an old Yiddish saying. Um, there was a, a man in Jewish history, he lived two 300 years ago. He's called the Vilna Gon, or the genius of Vilna, which is in Lithuania. And he was truly a genius in the sciences and especially in the Word of God, incredible genius, probably the greatest genius in Solomon. And people think, oh, I'd love to be the Vilnagon, the genius. And so the saying is, many people want to be the Vilnagon overnight, but they still want to sleep at night. <laughs> so um, we can all... We can all become smarter and more proficient in God's word, but it's going to take work, and it's going to take time. Be patient. God's not in a rush. You'll never get it all anyway. The word of God is like a mountain that has no top, but you're not excused from climbing. You just keep climbing it, and that's adventure of life. It truly is. Okay, Are you ready for some homework? Yes, Grant, give us homework. Okay, and I have all the references I've used. They're also in the notes. So here's your assignment for next time. Uh, the assignment is Genesis 24, Genesis 24, and Genesis 24 is about Eliezer, who was Abraham's right-hand man, and he goes to Patanaram and he meets Rebekah, who he's going to bring home as Isaac's wife. Wonderful story. And where does Eliezer meet Rebecca? At a well. So what I want you to do is go through that chapter and apply the Peshat and then the Remez and Drash and see what you can do. Find connections between this and other stories and types and parables. And, uh, and if there are some sewed things that you discover, great. But if you don't, don't worry about it. You can look at what the names mean. That is always useful. And that gives you something to chew on. So uh, see what you can come up with. So take the sheet, and you have a uh, shot at the top, remez and sewed on the sides, and uh, uh, remez and my well, I'm getting tired now. Sewed so at the bottom, and try to fill it out. See what you can do. Now, if you want a little extra credit, not that I'm grading anything, but there are other stories in the scriptures where a man meets a woman at a well. And in most of these stories, he's meeting his bride at the well. So I want you to look at other, I call them well stories. They all have similarities. They all have differences. So look at the other well stories. It has to be where a man meets a woman at a well. OK? And see what you can draw out of that. I think you'll find some really, uh, some really fun insights and great life applications. OK? Any questions? Yes.
1: What would you uh, recommend we use as our tools for finding these uh, outside of our scripture mm-hmm. references? There? What, what would you what would you recommend as like a just a, a handful of things that you would?
0: Well, I'm, I'll be getting into detail on that when we get into um, how to do a word study, but right now, use what you've got. Uh, you can go to Blue Letter Bible, which is a free. Um, program site on internet it really helps you dig into some of the words as you do that and you can find meanings of names there as well I think um, but right now the most important tool you have is meditation now, I'm not talking about transcendental meditation where you get the lotus position and hum no we meditate on his word the angel of God told Joshua, "This book of the Torah shall not depart out of your mouth." but you should be careful to meditate on it day and night." Meditation is an extremely important thing. Meditation is a spiritual equivalent of chewing your food. A baby's on a liquid diet. It goes in and it goes down, and it's done. The bottle's empty. But as adults, we want to eat meat. That requires chewing. Chewing is the equivalent of meditation. It takes time. So you take it in, you take a verse, take a passage, and you think about it. You think about it. You ask questions of the passage. You ask, why is it worded this way instead of this way? Why is this information here that doesn't seem important? Why is this other information not there that I would really like to know? Why is a story repeated? And when it's repeated, what are the differences in the repetition? And um, ask questions of the passage. Think about it. Chew on it. Take time over it. That's the most important tool you've got. And all these other things Tim's talking about are important. They're great. You're going to really enjoy them. But none of them are a substitute for meditating in God's word. That, by far, is the most important of all. So, I don't want to skip this to go to those. So I'm, so, I'm dodging your question a little bit right now, Tim. So, I just want you to really ponder and pray about it. Talk to God. He's the author. And say, Father, what do you mean by wording this this way, by organizing and orchestrating the story to take place as it did? What, what are you trying to teach me? What does this have to do with me? What are you trying to teach me about you? And... Uh, Meditate, pray, chew, think, and don't be in a hurry. Find a time and a place where it's quiet and still. And, uh, and you'll walk away a different person. You really will. All right. Well, I'm going to close in prayer. And then anyone who wants to stick around, to ask questions or share insights or whatever, uh, I'd love to hear from you. So let's pray. Our Father and King, thank you so much for how precious and wonderful your word is. Lord, it defies description. It is an entire world in and of itself. It is supernatural. It is not of this world. And Lord, I pray we would approach your word with great awe and respect, knowing that you want to encounter us there, and you want to invite us into your walled paradise, your walled garden, to have fellowship with us. That though Adam and Eve were evicted, you now, through Yeshua, invite us back in to walk with you in the cool of the evening, to speak with you and have fellowship with you. So Lord, help us to step away from our busy lives and step into the pardes of your holy word.
1: And we'll give you praise and glory for it all in Yeshua's precious name. Amen.